Hello, historically speaking, listeners. We have a we have a few special guests on the line today, um, but uh, our first one is someone who is coming to us all the way from Israel, a former alum of our school, Sarah Martinson. Hey, Sarah. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. We're really happy to to see you. Sarah, you know, in the United States right now, there's been this huge hoopla over the fact that President Biden did not call the Prime Minister, um, Benjamin Netanyahu, he did not call him for, you know, almost a month. Um, And there's been all sorts of, you know, media flack about that. So we wanted to know, in Israel, has anyone been talking about this? Not that I have heard of, about the call specifically. However, that being said, there has been a lot of talk about Biden and the transfer of power from Trump to Biden, specifically in the impact of Israel. Um, As you may know or may not, Trump and Netanyahu had an interesting relationship, and Trump had a big part in Israel and in the Middle East the past four years. And so... What's more on people's minds is what Biden's going to do with his next four years, um, including Israel. And so what kind of things are you hearing from, you know, people on the from street? people on the street? Like, is there excitement? Well, was there, at least for, I did hear I did hear yeah. that there is a new neighborhood in Jerusalem called Trump Heights. Is this true? I don't know. I've never heard of that that place. Maybe there is. Maybe it's <laughs> under a different name, but that's a nickname. Uh-huh. Um, but I think there was a lot of people that were I was watching from um, my uh, seger, which means lockdown, um, in my little dorm room watching the elections while I was quarantined, um, and I was really interested in what was happening and. A lot of my friends were really interesting what was happening. But other than that, most people, it's it's been more focused on Israel in general than Israel and America um, than one might, may think. For me, um, I've had the questions of, like, what what does this all mean? I've talked to my parents. I've talked to friends. And no one knows specifically of what's going to happen. We can all hypothesize about what he's going to do yeah i think i not that we'd expect you to i think a lot of reporters from different places don't know exactly where his head is on this stuff one one last question for you sarah and that is just like can you did you have you sensed anything in terms of a difference before january 28th and after i don't know if i've felt an exact difference but i have felt a, a calmer existence for different communities in Israel. Like there's definitely, like I live close to the Haredi community and I have not really seen that much of a difference. I don't really think that they're that much in politics, but a lot of my so-called liberal Jewish Israelis from Tel Aviv have felt more calm that Mm -hmm. Biden has won and that America did not crash and burn. I think that, beyond anything, was the best outcome of, like, America survived. It did not crash and fall and burn down. And so (laughs) I think that because 
it is all okay. Like Israel will still get aid from America. And I think that's the biggest thing that they were worried about. Yeah. And that's a, that's a long relationship, right? That, mm. that aid relationship there. Yeah. Very long. <laughs> so much for coming on. It's so great to see you. Um, I'm glad you're in Israel. Um, it's wonderful to hear from you and uh, yeah. to get Thank your you. expert opinions. Yeah. Thank you so much. Okay. Without further ado, let's go ahead and introduce our topic for this week. Yeah. Is this the longest we've gone before doing the intro sequence? I, I think it know. probably is. Potentially. I don't All know. Right. There's been so, some long ones. There's been some long ones. All right. So hello and welcome to Historically Speaking with me, Mr. Linden. And me, Ms. Ratledge. Where we explore the history behind the topics in this week's news. And uh, we are talking about uh, modern Israeli politics today and Israel and the U.S. and that relationship there. You already heard from one of our lovely guest experts, um, Sarah, and, uh, you know, I, I said guest experts. That means there's more than one. And I think it's just about time that we introduce the second one. Don't you think, Ms. Ratledge? <laughs> I'm on the edge of my seat. Uh, all right. Uh, we can finally reveal the, the rumors have been swirling in the media for weeks. Uh, but we can finally confirm that we do, in fact, have Mr. Smith um, on this call. Um, so Mr. Smith, the, uh, the local expert on uh, Israeli politics, modern Israeli politics, and uh, frankly, a whole plethora of other things. Um, but uh, we're specifically going to employ him in that capacity today. So, Mr. Smith, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for the invitation. How many how many things are in a plethora? <laughs> I think a minimum of With, four. A minimum four. of four feels like a plethora. I think I know like two things, maybe you know something about baking, and then maybe maybe something about Portuguese. Israel. You have all these mystery talents, Mr. Smith. Well, yeah. no, my publicist has gotten way ahead of <laughs> the facts. So you know something about hiring a good publicist. <laughs> but, uh, That's three things. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, my question is, uh, what is a plethora versus a myriad or a cornucopia? Right. Where, where, how do we rank those in terms of number? That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> is there's like a specific measure word for specific things, like a gaggle of geese? A murder of crows. Don't don't entertain him, Mr. Smith. He will go sleuth on. of bears. <laughs> on and on. <laughs> a group of bears is called a sleuth. We'll be like ten minutes into before we actually get to the topic at hand, which is, by the way, okay. A flamboyance I'm gonna, I'm of flamingos. Okay, I should stop. <laughs> um, so as we as I asked Sarah earlier, you know, it has been it supposedly this was a weird thing, weird enough that the the, the media reported it on this. I am not an Israeli American relations expert at all, but I want to ask you, is it a little strange that President Biden did not call um, Prime Minister uh, Benjamin Netanyahu for almost a month, or is that kind of normal? You know, I think I think it is pretty striking, um, and who knows if they're using other media. You know, if they're like DMing each other or something, you What's know, that? Uh, <laughs> right. TikTok. Right. Exactly. Yeah, they're on TikTok channel. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that would be a journalistic coup if you could, if you could find that. Um, you know, I think it, st it stands out in part because you know, there's the there's the bilateral relationship between the countries, which is so important, um, and uh, 
you know, longstanding. But then there's also the fact that these two guys have 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 a longstanding history of their own. Uh, they've been friends since the 1980s, um, when Biden was on the I think Senate Foreign, Foreign Relations Committee, and uh, Netanyahu was a uh, at the U.S. embassy, in, Israeli embassy in Washington, and they've been friends. I mean, they actually have a have a friendship. Um, so you know, going on 40 years now, and so I think in the context of that that shared history that they have, the fact that, uh, you know, Biden didn't make the call is, is interesting. It tells us something. Um, and I think over the years of their shared history, things got kind of complicated, particularly during the Obama administration. Um, I'm sure, and perhaps you've covered on this podcast, the Iran deal that the uh, U.S. was. We'll get okay. there. So I won't, I won't steal the thunder of that. But uh, basically, Netanyahu and the Obama administration were on opposite sides of that uh, idea. And uh, at one point in 2015, Netanyahu came to uh, speak to Congress on, uh, to share his you know, opposition to the plan. Which uh, you know sparked a lot of controversy. The the idea, I guess, held by some in the Obama administration that that Netanyahu was trying to undermine U.S. foreign policy, and so there's this image actually of Netanyahu addressing Congress and Joe Biden as vice president is sitting behind him on the left, and the Speaker of the House John Boehner is on the right, and so you know I think that. That that it's it's hard to kind of like unsay. Not that ben Netanyahu wants to unsay anything he said, but that you know uh, that's a moment that's hard to un, you know unwind or backtrack. And so I think that there's there's this this overlap of the personal and the political that probably led mm-hmm. to the delay in the phone yeah, call. Yeah, there, there. there's also the the added fact that maybe more than any vice president in history, uh, Joe Biden was entrusted with a lot of foreign relations responsibility. Um, and That's so right. he was, in a lot of cases, the U.S.'s sort of lead negotiator on various different issues. So, I was living in D.C. when that happened. I remember that so clearly. And it, it's not I, – I should look at those pictures. It's not as telling as when Pelosi, you know, ripped up Trump's uh, yeah. State of the Union speech. But I do remember seeing the pictures of Biden being oh, like – Oh, definitely not. I cannot believe you are standing in front of Congress <laughs> going behind our backs and doing something that we explicitly right. told you not to. Now, you know, um, I mean – so. I think what's I, maybe we'll discuss this uh, in time here, but I mean, eighty percent of Israelis were opposed to that deal, and I think that uh, perhaps the Obama administration, mm-hmm. Americans, didn't have a, a, a strong sense of the degree of the opposition there in Israel. Um, many Israelis disagreed with Netanyahu's sort of strategy for. Uh, confronting that deal, confronting the United States around that, but in terms of the details of the deal, whether Israelis thought that it was going to uh, enhance their security, uh, clear majorities of Israelis, you know, felt otherwise. And so, I think that you know Netanyahu might argue that he was representing, you know, the the the, the people he was elected to to serve there. But there's definitely just some missing each other between. Netanyahu and the mm-hmm. Obama administration um, yeah. at that time. 
And can you just real quick give us a sense of, of where that opposition came from? What, what specifically about the deal was it that, that garnered so much opposition? I, I think it starts probably with a, maybe more of a 30,000-foot kind of view of the, the yeah. administration in Tehran not being perceived as being you know, trustworthy uh, or capable of acting in good faith. Individuals and organizations with ties to Iran have been connected to acts of terrorism in Israel and around the world where Israeli interests or proxies have been targeted. Uh, I happened to live in Argentina in the late 1990s after the uh, Israeli embassy in Buenos Aires and the Jewish Community Center there were both uh, bombed by individuals uh, with, with ties to Iran. Um, and so, you know, the idea, the idea that diplomacy is the right lever as opposed to military uh, levers, mm-hmm. I, think, I think just from the, from the get-go, that was not, it was not uh, I think, Israeli confidence in diplomatic diplomatic path well given that um you know this is historically speaking when we talk about the history right and though we could go through the history of joe biden and and benjamin netanyahu who have both been in politics for far longer than perhaps they should be um but nonetheless (laughs) they are still since the cretaceous era yeah (laughs) exactly um you know, I, I think it would. I think it'd be helpful for for me, um, and also probably for many of our listeners, to kind of go backtrack a little bit into just why why the United States is interested in Israel, anyways, in the first place. I mean, not that they shouldn't be, to be clear, but you know, it's just a small country in the Middle East, and yet they receive um, some of the, I think, the largest amount of aid from the United States. So. What is, and I'm going to direct this question to you, Mr. Lennon, because I think you know a little bit about just, you know, kind of a brief, like, tell us a little bit about the creation of Israel and what was going on prior to that. And then we'll kind of move forward into why the United States got involved. So to properly tell this story, I would have to start way back in biblical times, which is uh, why I'm not claiming to properly tell this whole story about the the establishment of the state of Israel. Instead, I'm going to sort of swoop in in the 1900s to talk a little bit about um, the steps that the United States was involved in or or how the U.S. reacted to it. So in 1917, uh, when the World War I was raging. Um, the British uh, issued a document called the Balfour Declaration, which basically stated their intent to create a Jewish homeland in the state of Israel, in Eretz Yisrael, um, which at the time was British Palestine. Uh, and uh, the British didn't necessarily follow up on that swiftly uh, in the wake of World War I, but it did add fuel to the fire that was the, the Zionist movement, the movement for a Jewish homeland in, in Israel, um, which only grew over time, uh, especially after uh, the Second World War and all the atrocities there, the Holocaust and the, the horrors of that, uh, strengthened the uh the Zionist call for a Jewish homeland and the need for a Jewish homeland. So uh, by the time we get to 1948, and Britain is rather hastily withdrawing from a number of its uh, colonies and protectorates all over the globe and sort of leaving a mess wherever they uh, retreat from in that they didn't really make very good preparations for what was going to come next. Um, there were uh, there was conflict in the region um, between 
the Jews pushing for a Jewish homeland and other, you know, Palestinian and Arab uh, powers in the region who were uh, opposed to this idea. The UN was also involved to try to moderate what was happening, but I really want to focus on what happens with the US, which is that they are essentially faced with this question after the state of Israel is declared of whether they want to recognize the state of Israel formally or not. Um, and there's a healthy debate within the Truman administration, uh, people like George Marshall um, in the War Department. Um, feel like it is not a wise choice to come out immediately in support of Israel because he was afraid that it would limit the US's access to strategic oil reserves in the Middle East, especially in Arab countries. Um, but uh, Harry Truman was very concerned with making sure that he was uh, listening to the plight of displaced peoples, and he thought that supporting Israel would be a good symbol for that. And, and other folks had uh, various different opinions all along uh, the spectrum of opinions that, that was around at the time. And eventually, the side that won rather swiftly in the end was uh, to recognize the state of Israel. And so the United States became the first country uh, to recognize Israel, to issue any sort of recognition to Israel which sort of laid the groundwork for this United States-Israel relationship, this, this distinct relationship. Um, seeing the sort of roots of a lot of the people coming from Europe, seeing that there were a lot of countries in the Middle East, uh, places like Egypt, that were very much leaning towards siding with the Soviet Union in the Cold War, especially after the Iranian Revolution, um, when Iran went from being like a staunchly capitalist society to one that leaned a little bit more to the Soviet Union. Um, Israel was sort of the U.S.'s agent in the Middle East uh, in some ways in enforcing uh, their side of the Cold War. Um, so that's sort of where the modern, I would say the modern impetus for this really tight relationship is, is from there. I, I guess, uh, what, do, what do you think of that narrative? What would you tweak about that narrative, Mr. Smith? So, yeah, Mr. Lyndon, I can definitely, I think, co-sign the Cold War context for the relationship. And, you know, first, the potential hesitation on the part of the U.S. of getting involved, of being seen to play favorites. And then, you know, after and not being not wanting to be drawn into a hot war. Right. And so yeah. uh, after the Six Day War, the Johnson administration that. You know, that shifts where I think that those misgivings about being seen to favor one side or the other sort of subside. And, and under Johnson, the U.S. moves more clearly toward, you know, open support of Israel as an ally. Right. So that's after 1967, when one of us, a, a series of conflicts between Israel and its neighbors breaks out the Six Day War. Um especially that one was was fueled in a lot of ways by um, the government of Gamal Abdel Nasser in Egypt, who was uh, notably sort of played both sides of the Cold War uh, um, quite adeptly um, in getting funding from both sides at various different times. But um, a figure who is very much, uh, I don't know if reviled is too strong of a world, but, but, but very much disliked in Israel. Um, uh, but after that, the U.S. more openly embraces uh, supporting Israel financially and militarily. So would you say that it's the Six-Day War that is when that kind of the strength, the strengthening of the, the, the foreign and the military aid starts? 
in, in the 1960s, or is that really after the Camp David Accords in the 70s? Which one? I'd say that that's the first phase. Um, you know, Israel had its own misgivings about being too dependent on any single great power, even as it realized, you know, perhaps the necessity of that, given the, the neighborhood it found itself in. Um, but yeah, I think I think the Six Day War is a is a crucial step. You know, but even even with the uh, Yom Kippur War in '73, um, mm-hmm. you know, Golda Meir's hesitation uh, around launching a preemptive strike, which she ultimately decided not to do, is in is in part colored by, uh, I guess, apprehension about what the U.S. would think if Israel didn't mm-hmm. exhaust diplomatic channels. So so even in in the early '70s. It was a kind of still kind of feeling each other out, still not feeling entirely confident in, uh, I mean, on the Israeli side of what the U.S., how the U.S. would react to Israeli decisions. And, and that's, correct me if I'm wrong, a little bit of a hangover from the 1950s when, along with Britain, um, and maybe France was involved as well, uh, when Egypt, uh, Ms. Ratledge is nodding, so yes, France was involved too, um, when Egypt nationalized the Suez Canal, said uh, the Suez Canal is now going to be part of Egypt, it's not going to be part of Britain or international or anything like that, it's going to be ours. Israel and Britain and France launched a retaliatory attack, and the world community kind of said, whoa, slow down. Right, um, including the United States. Um, so maybe there yeah. was some. Eisenhower famously scolded them. Yes. Like, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, so there's some hesitancy uh, bleeding over from the 50s into the 70s. But, I mean, Ms. Rutledge, you mentioned the Camp David Accords, right? So that's another major turning point in this whole narrative. What's the major switch? Because it seems to me like there is a period of time, right, in the during the Cold War, where the United States is kind of in control, right? There, Israel is a young nation. Israel is relying, it's like what you said, Mr. Smith, about, you know, go to my ears, kind of like, what should I do? You know, am I gonna make the US mad or am I not gonna make the United States mad? Um, there's, this, there's this period of time where the US is much more controlling, as opposed to now, for example, where I feel, I don't feel like that it's switched at all, but I don't feel like the, that Israel is necessarily waiting on the United States to tell them what to do on things, right? Um, and so I think it's important to think about like the Cold War period of time and then the post-Cold War, or mm-hmm. really what I think of, just as I remember this growing up, is the first and then the second Antifada. Like it seems like things distinctly shifted after, in the, you know, after the second Antifada in the 2000s. Um, so I don't know if we want to talk about that a little bit and how maybe that plays into some of the things that the that the relationship is like today. Yeah, I, I mean, that's everything. I think, you know, the, the post-Cold War transition and uh, the decline of great powers, right, the, the rise of others and how Israel, you know, finds potentially, I guess, maybe some, some more room to, to, to maneuver, to assert itself in a landscape that's a little flatter. Um, <laughs> I, I, I guess, you know, I also, I think it's interesting. I, my, my, my Hebrew is awful, uh, but there's a Hebrew word, uh, kishalon, which means failure. And uh, 
the first time I heard that word was in the context of the Oslo Accords. <laughs> and almost mm. any media, Israeli media I consume on the Oslo Accords has this word kishalon, failure, in it. And I think that, um, you know, there, we have almost ritualistically U.S. presidents who are, you know, announce a peace process, right? Uh, and it's just like almost a, main, a staple of, of uh, U.S. politics and U.S. presidency, uh, right? For potentially, I, I think, for local audiences, for American audiences more than Israeli ones. Uh, and, uh, and I think that Oslo and the failure of that framework to deliver, so that, you know, 93 framework to deliver peace, um, I don't, I don't want to say that it discredited the U.S., but I think, I think out of that uh, and the spiraling violence that followed, you know, that, that attempt at a, at a peace accord, I think that um, perhaps there is uh, an attitude on the part of Israeli leaders that they're going to be, you know, the, the captains <laughs> of their own ship mm -hmm. on that, right, and look out for their own interests, and they don't need... They don't need the U.S. You know, to, like to solve this, or maybe they don't trust the U.S. to to solve the problem or to understand the context well enough to just kind of sit. So, down. so if we can take sort of a, just a step back, and because we we've been going into a lot of a lot of sort of detail stuff here, uh, we're sort of telling a narrative of a couple of different phases of this relationship, right? And, and tell me if this is you think this is accurate. We have an initial process, uh, which is sort of the formation of Israel, the initial relationship between the U.S. They're very dependent on the U.S. for, for aid, for financial support, military support, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we see in the Suez incident um, that there is uh, a disconnect between the expectations there. The America does not really want Israel making big moves without their approval. And that sort of bleeds into the 70s, right, when we were talking about Golda Meir feeling unsure of whether she needed U.S. approval. And then in the middle there in 67, we have sort of a step towards um, a more uh, U.S. being more comfortable making this a formal relationship. Um, and that sort of continues until uh, it sounds like we hit the 90s and maybe the process hasn't been as fruitful as, as either side would hope. Um, and there starts to be a little bit of dissension amongst the Israelis feeling like maybe the U.S. isn't the most reliable benefactor, right? Or that they shouldn't be a benefactor at all. They should be a partner or something like that, which sort of leads us into these modern day questions of, uh, you know, what is the relationship between the U.S. and Israel? Can Bibi Netanyahu come in and say, you know, you guys shouldn't be making this Iran deal in front of, in front of Congress? Um, does that narrative sort of sum up what we're saying? Yeah, I think so. I think that uh, Israelis, Israeli leaders, uh, Israeli advocacy organizations have have determined that they need to do some educating of Americans. And I think mm. that, you know, probably uh, Netanyahu would say that that speech before Congress was uh, was a teaching <laughs> moment. That's mm. that's why he was there, right? That that. American American policymakers, the American public don't understand. You can't understand unless you're here, and so we're going to have to teach you. And I think that 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 shift, that maybe assertion of the Israeli voice, and of course there are many voices, and many perspectives, but that 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 is a kind of a modality that that 
that the relationship shifts into mm-hmm. where Israeli leaders are um, more assertive at trying to teach, inculcate, explain their point of view publicly. Um, do, you, do you think, Mr. Smith, that the relationship has also shifted now away from the Americans being involved in a peace process um, and more about wrapped up in, in the Iran nuclear deal? In other words, is that really the role that the U.S., that their relationship is going to kind of pivot around? Is- well, what's so fascinating is that, so uh, under Trump, the uh, so-called Abraham Accords were uh, signed, and these are normalization agreements with uh, Bahrain, United Arab Emirates, and Morocco and Sudan. Mm-hmm. And so now you have, you know, you have trade relations, flights uh, going from United Arab Emirates to uh, Tel Aviv. And, um, but the mention of the Palestinians in those accords is very muted. And what's interesting is that that reflects the, I guess, interests or perspectives of the Arab powers in the region uh, who have declined to make the Palestinian cause their central cause. Mm. Uh, that's that's a fascinating shift, um, and for you know regional uh, Arab powers, uh, the opposition to Iran is a unifying, uh, I think, um, sort of point of view, and it's something that unites them with uh, Netanyahu uh, and the Israeli government that they share a perception that Iran is uh, is, is a regional threat. So it's almost like it's not that the U.S. in in promoting an Iran deal has necessarily kind of set the table for that, the shift away from the Palestinians. It's it's as much local, like the Arab countries in the region that that are are showing that that, that that's it's a shift in their priorities as well. Um, and, uh, you know, the Palestinians have been quite Palestinian leadership has expressed a lot of. Uh, frustration and outrage over the lack of a focus on their uh, interests in the Abraham Accords and uh, the lack of an invitation to participate. But mm-hmm. yeah, I think I think that's an interesting thing that Iran is now kind of the that's the front page. So story. another another repeat of the the you know the old adage of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Mm-hmm. Um, right. right, everybody kind of aligned together against Tehran. Um, right. Yeah, just like uh, just like we saw some interesting alliances forming during the Cold War era, right, where the U.S. was willing to support states that maybe otherwise they wouldn't have been in league with, uh, just because they opposed Russia, which is a theme in American politics today too. So maybe we're in some sort of sneaky way coming full circle in the relationship. Um, so these things always, you know, twist and change as we go along. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I speak for both of us when I say thank you so much, Mr. Smith, for joining us today um, on this podcast to talk about these uh, these thorny, you know, complicated I- issues that uh, that you are much much better suited uh, to speaking about than we are. <laughs> not at all. Uh, that's not at all true. But I was happy to do it. Happy to. <laughs> I was happy to hang out with you guys. I'm I'm really convinced that they have a that we've got to find this TikTok channel. 
Easy. <laughs> Old Joe from TikToks. I'm on He'd it. He'd do it. He'd do it. I don't know about BB, but but Joe, Joe Biden would do a TikTok. And uh, we hope you tune in next week. Thank you so much, Mr. Smith. Thank you, guys. Thank you.